0: We're back with another bonus episode. This time of the 1996 adaptation of Romeo and Juliet um, by Baz Luhrmann, which didn't make our initial list of, of movies to, to talk about. You know, Hunt for Red October was there early, Shawshank was there early, some other ones we, we want to do at some point in the future. But in making a list of other ideas... Um, I think I remembered how my affinity fondness for the night, for this, for this movie. And I put on the list And and Rebecca, you DM me saying, I want to do that one. And so we Mm -hmm. decided to do it. It's kind of using the, um, let your pleasure be your guide, uh, to what we should do next. We haven't talked about this at all, except that we were interested in a a couple of, I guess, qualitatively general texts of like, I'm watching it right now and I'm so excited to talk about it. That's as far as we've gotten in terms of, um... Uh, any pregame for it so let's let's do this first let's do the background of the movie because I think that's helpful and then we mm-hmm. can talk about how we first encountered the movie and then get into some nitty-gritty it, it's hard for me to remember that Boz Luhrmann is I, I guess you would call by, by technical definitions an auteur in terms of he does a lot of the writing does the casting the involved in a lot of ways and also the thing that you want mm-hmm. from an auteur, where it's like if you're watching a Baz Luhrmann movie, there's no doubt you're watching a Baz Luhrmann movie. Much like there's no yes. doubt you're watching a Tarantino movie. And I had forgotten that I knew that. And I just I had a, my initial moment in the first five minutes like, oh, yeah, I like this. I like this whole yeah, thing.
2: It's, yeah, it's very stylized in a very certain way.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, there's um, a Baz Luhrmann flavor.
0: And this was his second feature film after 1992, Strictly Ballroom, which did pretty well enough juice out of that to get this movie made. Um, But the budget was small. I mean, it was 20 years ago now. So the the production budget was $14.5 million. Became a really big hit. Not like Titanic, Mm -hmm. which I think is kind of hangs over the shadow of this because it's DiCaprio and it's in the same time period and whatever. But it's not like a multiple billion dollars. But it did 10x global box office, um, and made really that Lurman was going to have a continued career, roll that into Moulin Rouge, which did very well. And Gatsby did very well. Whatever you might think of that movie, um, Gatsby is highest grossing and, and like Basil Lurman's a thing. I guess Australia was a, a, a Turkey. Um, Michelle and I watched that a while ago thinking we mm. might like it. We did not. It is a bad movie. <laughs> um, but then also it's hard to remember now pre Titanic DiCaprio. um, and I don't know if this movie got DiCaprio, Titanic. I didn't, I didn't get that deep into the weeds. But in casting this, DiCaprio flew himself out. He paid for his own expenses to fly out to Australia and screen test and do some, you know, doing screen text, uh, tests that then Lorman sent to Fox that got the budget. So a very much a grassroots kind of an effort. And I think some of that sort of band camp feeling to how the movie got mm-hmm. put together, I think, comes through in the movie itself.
2: I think so, too. There's a real, I mean, the, the Montagues and the Capulets are set up as gangs, but there right. is, in addition to that, there's a real like camaraderie yes. between the the guys in those gangs that definitely feels like it's that it existed off screen mm-hmm. as well, that they were having a ball filming those scenes, but it just the chemistry there. Is the kind that when you watch a movie like that, you think like, "Oh, these guys must have been having fun off screen too." There must have been right. like that sort of sleepaway camp feeling to it. Yeah, I got that as well.
0: Um, another interesting thing I thought about, um, you know, why do this? Why why adapt Romeo and Juliet? And Lorman said, you know, Shakespeare. It's Shakespeare is some a sort of a museum piece in a lot of ways, and it's hard to remember that there was actually a time when Shakespeare was alive and dynamic. And there's other ways. You know, famously, there's that version, you know, of Shakespeare people, I think, puts them to sleep that Robin Williams channels and Dead Poets says, like, alas, poor Yorick." Mm-hmm. you know, very staid yeah. and, you know, very, uh, I don't even know how you would call it, monologue heavy and static. But Shakespeare, the plays in the moment were for common people. They're very theatrical and dramatic and broad and intense and passionate. And Lorman said he really felt like, what, what kind of a movie would Shakespeare make of Romeo and Juliet if he were making? a movie version of it. And that was the thought experiment. I thought that was really interesting, too.
2: Yeah, I thought that was as well. And I was thinking about this movie in the context of another great 90s movie based on Shakespeare, 10 Things Ah, I Hate About You, which is a reworking of The Taming of the Shrew or a different kind of adaptation where it takes the story, but... You know, most of the lines coming out of the characters' mouths are new words Mm -hmm. that were not written by Shakespeare. No one is speaking in iambic pentameter, it's just the bones of the story are the same. And we've seen, there are several other good examples of contemporary-ish reworkings of Shakespeare. Um, but this is the only one that takes all the old language and only the old mm-hmm. language. It's just the text of the book. Like um, in our book nerd movie hours, this is going to be an interesting one because there's no like, <laughs> what does the book get better and what does the movie get better? Like Very, the very takes... <laughs>
0: small things like Friar <laughs> you know? Lawrence versus, you know, pastor, you know, and there's <laughs> yeah. a couple of apothecary things, but it's very, very small, especially it's, knowing yeah, that Romeo and Juliet itself is not a stable text. Like, there's yeah, multiple versions of Romeo and Juliet from It's just,
2: right, it's just so close, um, functionally the same thing, but that to take that old text and put it into not just, like, not just the 90s, but, like, the psychedelic acid trip 90s, kind Mm -hmm. of, with street gangs, like Baz Luhrmann's version of psychedelic acid trip 90s. Um, I love that juxtaposition. It's also, I was just, I kept saying out loud to the people I was watching with, like, it is bonkers to me that this movie actually did well when you're watching it, because it is just, it's so, it's just so weird. Like, psychedelic acid trip 90s, and like this very over-the-top stuff to some of the elements plus shakespearean language coming out of their mouths not really in the correct rhythm like i was reading somewhere that pete postal who plays friar lawrence is the only actor who's speaking and i am i noticed that movie. i didn't read that but i noticed it. like um, he was
0: doing that he was performing like the yeah, shakespearean he, version of how he
2: does the whole thing it's like why why does this work i'm not even sure i can answer it but i was riveted for the entire mm. two hours <laughs>
1: Today's episode is brought to you by Four Eads and a Funeral by Farida Abike Yamide and Adiba Jai Ghadar. And let me just say, these two authors are powerhouse YA authors. They write bangers. They write fire novels that slap. Just letting y'all know that off rip. So ex-best friends Tiwa and Saeed must work together to save their Islamic center from demolition. Tiwa doesn't understand what made Saeed start ignoring her, but it's probably that fancy boarding school of his. Anyway, he's unexpectedly staying at home through the summer and she's determined to take a page from him and pretend he doesn't exist. So there's that. But when the Islamic Center accidentally catches fire, it turns out the mayor plans to demolish the center entirely. Shady, shady boots. So will all their efforts be enough to save the Islamic Center, save Saeed, and maybe even save their relationship? Listen... Time will tell. Make sure to check out the new book. And thanks again to For Eads and a Funeral by Farida Abike Yamide and Adiba Jagadar for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by World Editions, publisher of Salamalik by Khaled al in this unflinching story about Arab masculinity and homoeroticism, Farat, a Syrian in his early 20s, visits Sibki Park in Damascus, one of the city's most popular cruising areas. There he learns about the Hammams, secret meeting places for gay men located throughout the old city. So inside these public baths, the air is thick with the scent of bay laurel soap, and naked men hide in the steam. Ferd faces sometimes violent disapproval from all levels of society, regime, religion, the man in the street, you name it. And yet he manages to find the love he's been seeking just before his world collapses and he's forced to flee. Find out more about Salamlik by Khalid Alasmail, translated from the Arabic by Larry Price at indiepubs.com slash products slash salamlik. That's S-E-L-A-M-L-I-K. And thanks again to World Editions, publisher of Salamlik by Khalid Al-Asmail for sponsoring this episode. <laughs>
0: Yeah, Yeah, let's, we'll get into our first experience because I think in the, we're different ages and the age when this came Mm -hmm. out for me mattered a great deal to me personally, but I think I was the target or me and my cohort was a sort of a target demo, but we'll get back to that for a second. Casting what ifs. The only one that I found that was notable and interesting was originally Natalie Portman Mm -hmm. was cast um, as Juliet and she was 14. And if you know anything about Romeo and Juliet, like Romeo and Juliet are supposed to be very young, like very like
2: Juliet's 13, 13
0: and yep. Romeo maybe a year older we don't really know Um, and there's even a talk about when Paris you know is trying to get Juliet's dad to agree to the arranged marriage and the dad's like well she's pretty young and he's like well youngers have been uh, happily wed and like even in the text she's very young mm-hmm. right not just for the time and then DiCaprio's 22 when the movie comes out. I'm not. He must have been 21 when the filming got made. But in the screen, t- it got as far as screen test with Portman, and he just seemed so much older that it seemed gross, um, which I thought was yeah. really interesting.
2: Yeah, that same tidbit came up in my research as well, and I, I think it's one of well, one of the things that I thought about a lot while watching this is I don't know that this movie gets made in 2019 in the way that we think about um, portrayals of young people mm. especially young girls sexuality and like yes this is the story that Shakespeare told and yes they were 13 and 14 at the time and like the characters were but like there were just some moments where I was like oh I, it's hard to watch this with my 2019 oh eyes. really oh, so that's I thought okay, it was hmm. I thought it was very interesting to think about like Natalie Portman looked to Too young for the role when she was the age that Juliet is supposed to actually be. Yeah is is very interesting and some of the other people that were considered like there's a real range there you know and it's a very 90s list um sarah michelle geller mm-hmm. jennifer love hewitt which I, I think would have been a disaster um geller could have done it don't you
0: think geller i think, michelle Gellar, I think, could I think
2: she could have done it yeah. um Aaliyah, kate winslet that would have been interesting mm-hmm. especially if it had been kate winslet here and then in titanic with leo like that's quite a run um and christina ricci Weirdly, yeah. that's what that one's. Wow, that, one that, that is, hard is a very nineties list. It's <laughs> yeah, hard to imagine Christina Ricci yeah. in this role, but
0: well, she super, goes to American Beauty happens. around the same time. Like she was kind of a knit girl person, right? I think. That's, you know the name that was interesting to me, and the and the dynamic was completely different, and it would have made the Juliet character spikier in a way I haven't seen before, mm. but would have been, and closer in DiCaprio's age would have been Angelina Jolie, who would have been 22. Oh. So right around mm-hmm. DiCaprio's age, maybe the stuff about Juliet being too young, that dialogue, maybe wouldn't have bought that because Jolie even seemed older, like her demeanor yeah. and look, I think she just seems like an older woman from when she was younger. But having a sterner, slyer, you know, ice queenier Juliet mm-hmm. against the, let's just say it out loud, the nuclear fireball of hotness that is DiCaprio in this movie. I mean, I don't know how to... We have to just put it out there. I mean, oh, my God. Um, that, that, Lousy
2: with swagger. Yeah and, yeah,
0: and and Danes just kind of melts in front of him. I mean, and who wouldn't, to be honest? And But Jolie, I think, the, the back-and-forth sort of cloying... You know, DiCaprio... Or, uh, Romeo knows, I think, by and large... They both know very quickly that they're into each other, and a lot of the banter is ironical, right? Jolie's Mm -hmm. ironical counter banter would have been just fascinating to see there. So that was my one what if. I love Danes in this. I think she was a lot better than I remembered in watching it again. Mm -hmm. But, and again, so I'm not saying, I'm not, I'm not sort of like head canning wanting to recast her, but I did think like of the alternate casting, I think of Jolie as Juliet. I I would have watched, I would have been very interested to see how that played out. Yeah.
2: It would have been super interesting. That's a totally totally different movie. Just completely different. Jolie, I don't think Angelina Jolie has ever looked unknowing, you know, and like Claire Danes has this innocence that I think in this role that I think really serves Juliet
0: Mm -hmm. well
2: because this like ball of smoking hotness shows up at a party and convinces her to make out with him in an elevator and then 24 hours later they're going to run away with each other i
0: mean luckily she first sees him through an aquarium because otherwise she would have actually been turned to dust by the the (laughs) the gamma rays he's throwing (laughs) off like he's wearing like a lead armor and looking through an aquarium just to protect her just so she doesn't get completely blown away Um, because it's, it's really something,
2: (laughs) you know, I did read that all the characters are dressed in costumes that represent something about their personalities Mm -hmm. for that, for that costume party, which I also thought was, that's a fun note. But yeah, that like the very first time we see leo in this movie is this shot of him sitting on this falling down stage by the beach that like it's like this alternate universe la santa monica boardwalk kind of situation and he's just sitting on the stage with his legs dangling and his hair in his eyes smoking a cigarette and my first thought was like yeah this is why this movie worked for me when i was 14 and then this still works and also followed closely by like there's a lot of smoking in this movie and i don't think you get to <laughs> no, do that in there's a lot of smoking uh there's
0: it's it's also weird because it must have been hard to keep the cigarettes lit because dicaprio for whatever reason is wet in like almost every scene <laughs> yeah. like uh, there's something about the L- 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 lerman like the look of like a drenched like floppy haired dicaprio yeah
2: it, that like floppy 90s hair just needs to be wet yeah
0: um I don't know what we're going to do Romeo and Juliet itself text. Like, that's a whole different podcast. I yeah, mean, yeah. you know Romeo and Juliet. You know what it's about. Mm-hmm. I think the thing you said earlier about it's damn faithful to Romeo. This is Romeo it's and Juliet. Close. The the, yeah. the words are Romeo and Juliet. A lot of the stagings are are very much out of Romeo and Juliet. And, you know, the thing that Shakespeare allows you to do, because it is known, is you get to improvise on top of the language. And, you, you know, the thing that's also the best Shakespeare, I'd say, the best of the plays for a modern audience are ones where – you don't have to follow all the words. Like you get a lot of it Mm -hmm. or even some of it, but the situations themselves and the acting themselves like is about mood and relationship and reaction. And that, that it bears close reading by yourself in a mahogany armchair, you know, is just a wonder. But on the actual performance, it's like you could watch this movie with the sound off and understand what was happening.
2: Yeah. That I thought was really interesting noticing that like, First of all, in the first minute of the movie, the sort of framework is a news person like reporting on these riots that are happening and giving the preamble to Shakespeare or to Romeo and Juliet. Basically, you know right up front that they're store that they're star crossed and they're both going to die. Yes, Yes. And it's like you know that. And I had in my notes, I was realizing as I was watching it, like, okay, first of all, I've seen this movie several times. I know the story of Romeo and Juliet. I know what's going to happen. Like. They deliver the lines very quickly, like most of the lines. Mm-hmm. It's, they're quick. It's hard to follow because the language is Shakespearean language. But they're, the visuals of everything that's happening on on the screen, plus their faces, do a lot of yeah. the work. And I think that it's a – I'm going to assume it was intentional. Um, I think most things in Baz Luhrmann are intentional. That the characters, the actors are running through – the stuff that's not really essential very quickly. Yes. And then you get the important lines are delivered with like an extra verve um, or a knowing look or in, like in the case of Pete Postlewaite, who I just think wins this movie. Oh, he's
0: amazing. <laughs> he's yeah. incredible. Just
2: so good. You get all the good stuff, but you could like you can pay not much attention to what's happening and still know what's happening and i was sort of torn back and forth then i'm like okay then why make this so faithful to the mm-hmm. original text if you're gonna run through a lot of the original text but then the flip side of that and I think the place I ultimately landed was like well why not? why not like because you can show that you can do a whole two hours of really faithful Shakespeare language and have bonkers fun stuff happening on on the screen and people will come out and watch it mm-hmm. like and even if they don't understand the shakespearean language they're going to have fun and they're going to understand what's happening there and i think that's the only way that you can sell a two out like 2 hours of actual shakespeare to a wide yes. global audience is like this is going to be fun and you don't have to feel like a smarty smart shakespeare reader no
0: but if you are i think you there's another layer to what's fun about mm-hmm. it too like if you know for example that mercutio's soliloquy about queen moab which is, you know, hard to get through on the page. Like, what is this about about fairies and there rides in an empty hazelnut? Whereas in this one, you're like, okay, what can we do with this? And like, he's giving a drug speech. Like, this is all a metaphor for dropping acid, essentially. I Mm -hmm. guess, I'm guessing that's what we're supposed to understand is, or it doesn't even matter that it's acid. Like, you're dropping a psychotropic um, of some Mm -hmm. kind in this moment. I think the other thing, the language, the stylization of the language Like I think reinforces or further authorizes the stylization of the movie. Like just because it is outside of our normal cadence of speeches and rhythm, and that's the understatement of the universe, (laughs) is like (laughs) this is this is all part of this hyperkinetic caricature cocaine fueled you know experience that goes into it, and the language itself becomes a canvas it becomes a backdrop on which the characters can do other things like you mentioned the camaraderie between um, I guess especially Romeo's boys because that's very important mm-hmm. very early in the movie but later when they're just sort of hanging out and kidding each other and you know is my pomp well flowered and Di- DiCaprio grabs his groin you don't even they're traffic they're using that as the backdrop for the sort of this universal camaraderie of of young men kidding each other and sort of phys- being physical with each other and affection and emotional and how that turns into violence and you only need the language so that something is coming out of their mouth as they're intoning the thing and then acting with their right. bodies in different ways. So I think in a lot of ways, you you don't have to, first of all, you don't have to write a new script. You can just rework the ones you have. But then you're also also off the hook for what the language is supposed to do. Um, and you can focus on some of the other things. So in, in hindsight, it's amazing that it worked at all because there's sort of two big ideas. One is let's let's do Romeo and Juliet, but it's like, rival drug lord gangs that also have legitimate fronts in maybe Santa Monica, but also it could be <laughs> Rio de Janeiro, like, right. um, and they're gonna be sort of 90s neon punks, but also, that two, there were sort of two big ideas smashed together and it worked is is a miracle to me. Um, let's talk about when we saw it in the moment it came out in time, because it feels like a very 90s movie. I think it holds up great, But there's some. The way it's shot, the film grain, the contrast ratio. It's a very 90s movie. Yeah.
2: It is. It's so. I think the juxtaposition of something that we consider to be timeless, like Shakespeare, with something that was very much a product of its time, like the visuals in this movie, Mm -hmm. um, that that makes it super interesting. And I think it gives it a lot of richness and depth. But one of the first things out of my mouth when I was watching it was like, this is like, it's not timeless. And or I don't think that Baz Luhrmann's intention was for this to be timeless. Like this movie is very much a product of the time it was made. And it looks like it, like Jamie Kennedy with pink hair. Yes. And it took me 20 <laughs> minutes to remember that that was Jamie Kennedy and not Seth Green. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Which like, who cares?
0: I mean, basically, right. I'm sure they not the first time they've heard that, but yeah. Right, but just word.
2: the clothing, the colors, mm-hmm. the like, the ways that the guys in Romeo's gang kid around with each other are also, as you were saying, like it's universal. You could see that in in any movie from any time about a group of young men and the way that they interact with each other. Mm-hmm. But also like the way that the guys look and the particular mannerisms, like that stuff also feels very 90s teen movie. Yes. Um, yes. And there, there's like, there's also like, there's a lot of makeout scenes in swimming pools in 90s teen yes. movies. And we get one of those here. Like there's just stuff that's very much... Of the time that it was made and i think being able to look back on that adds to this experience it does hold up but i don't think anyone really expected it to hold up
0: no and i think because it's specific in its choices um and also like existing in a parallel universe like it can't not be shot in the 90s but it's not the godfather right like trying to shoot right. like, like trying to make it look like 1947 even though if the camera film grade and stuff holds up like he made a choice um, yeah, and the co-writers and the production designers. Piece, yeah. It's not a period piece, but it's also not not a period piece, weirdly. Um, like, I think a lot of Lurman stuff is kind of like, that. I guess Moulin Rouge, well, and Gatsby too. Yeah, I guess the other Lurmans in Australia are more grounded in a specific historical moment. But even like, again, I'm, I'm going to really try to keep my Shakespeare nerd stuff in advance. I'm so sorry. But like, this is set in <laughs> Verona, which for, it, for the English public was a foreign place anyway. They didn't know about it. Like, all these Shakespeare places are set in Italy because it's supposed to feel exotic, right? Yeah, and Lorman yeah. does the same thing by making it this amalgam of South Beach and Venice Beach and Rio de Janeiro and maybe Mad Max Fury Road and maybe Burning Man yeah. at the same time. Like, I'm not sure <laughs> yeah, of some of this there's
2: stuff. Yeah, r- there is a real Burning Man thing. And I think that that's a genius. It's a genius choice that Lorman made to take this story that can feel, or Shakespeare in general can feel, old and stuffy and like you have to have a degree in it in order to understand it and put it in like a gritty you know like a gritty neon colored party scene where everybody is we had an argument in my house if they were dropping acid or taking ecstasy um but everybody whatever it doesn't matter right Right. they're all on drugs they're using so much hair gel Yes. like (laughs) there's some amazing tattoos going on like that it makes it feel accessible. It makes this old text feel accessible to you because you can, there's a very low barrier to entry in, in terms of like jumping into the culture of what's happening on the screen.
0: So, this.
1: Today's episode is brought to you by Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds. When she drinks, she's bold and funny, and as pledging intensifies, so does Blake's drinking. Ella assures her that she's fine. Partying hard is what it takes, but with her future on the line, Blake must decide how far she's willing to go to achieve glittering dreams of success. Now, just so you know, Jazz Hammonds is the 2023 winner of the Critics' Scott King John Steptoe Award for new talent for We Deserve Monuments and We Deserve Monuments was an Amazon Best Books of the Year and Barnes and Noble Best Books of the Year for 2023. So suffice to say, y'all should check this new one out. Thanks again to Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books for Young Adults. From number one New York Times bestselling author Jennifer L. Armantrout comes a book I have to tell you about. It's Half Blood, and it follows Alex and her mom who have spent years on the run from The Covenant, a school where their pure descendants of gods hone their powers and half-mortal teens train to kill demons for them. When her mom is murdered, Alex has two options. She can become a servant for the Pures or work twice as hard to catch up in her training, the second option seems easier, but it gets a little complicated, you see, when pureblood Aiden becomes her personal trainer. So falling for Aiden isn't her biggest problem, surprisingly. As demons close in, she must fight to stay alive, even while others around her are dropping dead. So again, Jennifer L. Armentrout does the Thing when it comes to romance, fantasy, adventure, all those things. Other books are Blood and Ash, A Shadow in the Ember, all those good things. Make sure to check out Half Blood by Jennifer L. Armentrout. And thanks again to Bloom Books for Young Adults for sponsoring this episode.
0: This came out in 1996, I believe, the fall of 96. Did you see, or was it the spring of 96?
2: Oh, I didn't look. I think it was. I think it was
0: the fall. Yeah, I think it was too. I was a senior in high school, and a bunch of my friends and I went. And we it was an experience like a book nerd, not a surprise, but that my friends who were, you know, smart kids, but, you know, they weren't reading Shakespeare kind of like I was just for fun at the time. It was an event like we wanted to go see it like it was exciting. Mm-hmm. And I do think in hindsight now that it benefited from. Whatever it was Tarantino did to our movie culture expectations, I think Lurman really benefited from here. Mm, That's interesting. Like if Tarantino made a 1995 Shakespeare language adaptation, it probably looks and feels not unlike this Romeo and Juliet. So this new mode of movie making that felt exciting and transgressive, Mm -hmm. that's part of what's going on here at the same... I I think that for me very much was going on. This this felt cutting edge for a kid... Growing up in suburban Kansas, but it was playing at my multiplex, and I had access. Right, to it's
2: it. it's gritty, and it matters that it matters that they're waving guns around and not swords. It does, it does, and, and not just because that feels updated, but because it does add like. There's edge and there's coolness. Mm -hmm. And Leo DiCaprio is so dreamy. Um, I was in eighth grade when this came out in the fall of eighth grade. So 14. And I went to see it with my first boyfriend. Oh, dear. (laughs) Oh, I know. That poor Poor guy, guy. Those expectations. Jesus. And I have like I have incredibly at the time very sweet but in you know adult retrospect like very cringy memories of like I had the Romeo and Juliet soundtrack on CD in my boombox which went in my triple house. platinum
0: apparently. Apparently Did that was it really? a huge deal. Anyway, sorry. Not, just to let I you off the hook a little bit thoughts. for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. We can do soundtrack thoughts, but I like definitely made that poor guy like slow dance with me to the Romeo and Juliet oh, soundtrack. <laughs> Matt, if you're listening, I'm really sorry. Poor
0: Paris. Poor Paris. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but like this, this movie is just. Inextricably connected to like to those memories, but for me of being like a young teenager and wanting to be I was not cool, you know, like yes. but like wanting to be cool and also understanding that i was nerdy and going to see romeo and juliet and getting to like have this sort of fantasy romance thing playing out on screen but also that it's it's gritty and they're doing drugs and everything is very like turned up to 11 Mm -hmm. all the way um and transgressive as you were saying felt like that was very appealing for those two hours i got to be way cooler then, did you have to be helped out of the been.
0: movie theater after seeing DiCaprio <laughs> like did you need did you like did you get had to drink some orange juice and like recover a little bit because one of my strong memories of seeing it, I loved it too, but the the young women I saw it with the kind of talk they did about DiCaprio after it has stuck with me like a real a real a real like moment of public discourse around female <laughs> desire was happening in my in my social circle and i 'll leave it at that for now but it was oh, it was very funny. much a can, can you even handle what was going on in mm. that movie? Um, but anyway.
2: That's so funny. Yeah, I was, um, I think maybe too young to be having an interesting conversation yeah. about that. So watching it as an, like, I think this is the first time really in, significantly adult life that I've watched this and looking at it through those eyes, like, I think I have more appreciation for a 22-year-old Leo yeah. DiCaprio now than I did back then. But it, he, like, he carries this in a lot of ways and there's just, like, that energy and swagger and, like, innate charm mm-hmm. does so much work for for most of the characters that are on screen
0: he's re- with him. It's he's really great. And appealing. he does stuff in yeah. this movie you don't see him do anymore. Of, co- of course not. He's an older man. He's more but there's some physical comedy stuff around Romeo. Like Mm -hmm. he's fallen down at one point with the apothecary and like try, or I'm sorry, Friar Lawrence and like trying to follow him into church and he slips over and does the rosary. And then he's hiding from uh, Juliet's nursemaid, you know, down around the pool area before the balcony scene and he trips over something and like is falling over. He's just kinetic and lanky and, and, um, you know, both in smolderingly intense, but also vulnerable and starry-eyed at the same time. Very difficult kind of choice to pull off uh, around Romeo where he seems, threatening is the wrong word, but dangerous. He seems dangerous of a kind, but also not exploitive. Does that make any sense? I'm, I'm struggling mm-hmm. with how I'm trying to capture what I feel like is going yeah, on from mean, there. Yeah, I mean,
2: I think that that's, it's like just dangerous enough to be appealing, but not dangerous enough to be scary is that line that he walks in the way that he plays Romeo. And it's one of the reasons that the, like he delivers the, those lines when they first meet where he's like trying to talk Juliet into kissing him and, A scene like that, especially through my 2019 eyes of like a dude on screen trying to talk a girl Mm -hmm. into kissing him can be a tough hang. But he walks that line very well of like, okay, so maybe someone should have given Romeo the talk about consent, but they didn't. And here he is like just selling it in a way that like, it's not creepy. She's into it. Yeah. The affirmative is consent
0: like, is in her eyes from the yeah, moment they're looking through right. the aquarium. Yeah, yeah. Tank, but she's
2: yeah. into it and she wants him to be mm-hmm. asking that question and she's ready to say yes to it. And that like that play between them, there's this great sense of play. Yes. I think that, um, That Lorman really captures and that both DiCaprio and Danes bring to this relationship of like, they are young characters. And clearly this thing that exists between them is a really electric desire. But you have to be really careful about how you show that on screen with actors playing young teenagers. Mm-hmm. And it's it's also just edgy enough. It's like just sexy enough. They're in the pool, but it never gets really dirty. Mm-hmm. There's that morning after scene, which I think has one of like the great shots all time yes. in movies where he pulls the sheets up over them and they're under the white sheets and they're giggling mm-hmm. and they're just happy. And it's it's just like very pure. Um, and they capture that just beautifully, I think. Yeah,
0: it's it's really fantastic. Um, So we've, we've done some DiCaprio... Um, let's talk Danes for a second, because unfortunately, my first thing out of my mouth about the Juliet part was I want to see Julia <laughs> Angelina Jolie play it. But I think Danes, <laughs> what struck me this time was, a she's got this apple cheeked thing going on that is really charming and endearing, and she's beautiful, and she's got a smile as wide as the Mississippi. But she pulls off this inno- downy innocence thing, mm-hmm. but also you know she stands up to her father, and she is a match for Romeo. Um, intellectually and verbally, which comes across uh, very, very early, but also that her sexual desire is on the surface. Um, It's Mm -hmm. not something that needs this to be sort of cracked open or otherwise stolen from her. It's there, what's keeping her from, you know, it is the Montague versus Capulet rivalry and the social mores of the day, like that we have to wed in secret and things like this. But in terms of her own authentic sort of biological and emotional being, She's right there in the same space um, where Romeo is from the beginning. I think it took me a little while to warm up to her in this because it also takes you a little while to warm up to Juliet because so much of the movie we get, again, it's not from Romeo's point of view because it's a play and there is no point of view. It's how much time we spend with Romeo and his particular posse before we go to Juliet. And then Juliet talking to someone who isn't Romeo in private when she's talking to the nurse Mm -hmm. and really for the first time when they sort of promise to meet later and even to get married... And the nurse is toying with her, of saying, you know, that she knows that Romeo said to come meet her for confession. They're going to get married, and she's really like laying it on out there. And she does this really manic, kind of desperate but playful and fun performance that reminded me of why I liked her so much in my so-called life—a real Mm -hmm. like straddling adult and teenage stuff, really beautiful. And I I thought she was just really winning um, the whole way through. Again, she—I don't know. I don't know if you're looking to go checker for checker for. DiCaprio's sort of physical attractiveness. I'm not sure they're on the same level, but she's got something else that's beyond, you know, being classically beautiful in this role, um, even though she is. But uh, there's something else going on with her that I found really worked um, on the whole.
2: Yeah, I agree. I think she brings a real, there's a real depth Mm -hmm. to the way she plays the character and a maturity to it, even though she does appear so so wide-eyed and innocent. She does know what's going on and she is part of the plan she's not just swept up in the plan she's you know actively participating in it happening it's hard to think about young actresses who would have just at at, at that time even right now who are like Mm -hmm. as like who in the world is as classically beautiful as as leonardo dicaprio was when he was 22 like that's that's just hard no
0: it's 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 really tough (laughs) It's re-
2: <laughs> That's just a hard thing for anybody to match. Well, can I, can I put a,
0: a, a button on that just for a second? Because I think there is a, you know, the 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 beauty thing with women in Hollywood can cut both ways. Because like he's like male model, good looking, but doesn't get yeah. typecast as a male model. Whereas women, I think that are like super model, good looking, were supermodels in 1997. Like they weren't right. actresses for because they were too good looking or something else was going on there, but. I've heard it said that from the the supermodel kind of person, that it can be even harder to get a real acting job because you get typecast Mm -hmm. as a bimbo or, you know, a a you're actually playing a supermodel in the movie or something like that. You're not actually the female romantic lead. So I just wonder if that's at play here, too, is they didn't get Mm -hmm. the chance to show that they were actresses, that they were objectified in a different way. Oh, probably, yeah.
2: that very classic thing of that a woman who's that hot couldn't also be smart and taken seriously.
0: Right,
2: right, yeah. yeah. Um, But yeah, she's, I thought she was wonderful. I really enjoyed it. I could imagine Sarah Michelle Gellar in that role and it being interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm really glad that it was Claire Danes, especially also having seen my so-called life and then having seen her career develop and like the sort of layers to the characters that she can play, especially in the early seasons of Homeland. Um, She's, a very good actress and you can see seeds of that and of where she might go um, from this movie we have to talk about side characters yeah i mean there's
0: look we we have a whole thing set aside for who would you cast differently i would be an idiot to try to cast anyone differently they're all wonderful they're they're all there's not a single character in this that i'm like you know what i could imagine improving on that and it's and the one i could think of is baltazar which is um, you know, it doesn't get anything to do. He basically has to tell Romeo oh, that, yeah. that that Juliet's dead. Like, he gets two lines. There's nothing to do there, and I, that's not the the. I don't think recasting that would have helped at all. So played by one. Jesse
2: Bradford, Jesse who was Bradford. the step brother in Bring It On,
0: yeah, um, and who plays <laughs> the hot older brother, right? I guess in that yeah. in that mm-hmm. movie, um, in yeah. in this one he's like the ninth best looking person, which is saying something. Uh, <laughs> going into going to this because he's a really good looking <laughs> guy. Well, let's draft him then. Okay, let's draft performances. Um. I mean. I think we have to take DiCaprio off the board. He does so much. Yeah. He is, you know, as I said before, and I don't want to belabor it, but I will again. He's just incandescently amazing um, in the role. Um, after that, we talked about Danes. Who who, who merits the most discussion next?
2: Mm, I think Harold Paranois I I, I think so, too. Po- I would watch an entire spinoff like a Netflix series for 30 minutes every week for the rest of my life about Harold Perrineau who
0: Mercutio. plays Mercutio who is stands in for the jester in Romeo and Juliet mm-hmm. like he's the he's the class clown the member of the posse that is performative and verbal and over the top and kind of gets on people's nerves sometimes Baz Luhrmann gives him a lot to do and he does, and he does everything with it yes, yes he is a <laughs> drag queen gunfighter started i mean it's a costume but it's also not
2: miniskirt yes yes yeah amazing just an amazing performance and so much fun yeah to watch and john leguizamo is tybalt also like there that's a perfect casting moment, I think, and Leguizamo plays that character with, like, swagger and this sort of, like, sneer and just bravado yes. that is a different thing than we usually get to see from John Leguizamo. I was sitting there like, I just want to watch Leguizamo and Mercutio like yell at each yes. other on screen.
0: Yes, or kiss. Or, uh, a, That's the other one yeah, I was waiting right, for. Or right.
2: both. <laughs> yes. There's so much. It's just so much fun to watch them. And I was reading um that like Benicio del Toro was considered for Mercutio along it. with Ewan, Ewan McGregor and Christian Bale, mm. which I'm real glad it went the way that it went. Those would have been interesting performances but completely different flavors. And Parano is phenomenal. It's just hard to imagine anyone else really doing that. And
0: and not for nothing I'm glad it's Parano cuz we don't get to see him do parts like this in the f- like he has a long run on Lost. Yeah. I mean, that's probably where he's he's best right. known from, but this big flamboyant fam- flamboyant centrality of character there's not many of them. And, you know, we've seen this from Bale. We've seen this from De Tor- Del Toro yeah. with varying degrees I mean, of, you know, screen eating hamminess. Um, but, man, it it really worked. That sequined, two-piece, whatever, <laughs> club, carnival sequined outfit with a gun under his arm. Like, yeah. that felt transgressive to me at 17 in Kansas. Like, he's putting yes. on his lipstick with his gun wearing sequined bra. That's not something I had seen before. um, Yeah, it was
2: very, it's very transgressive. And I love that, like, the cast is relatively diverse, which was not a conversation I noticed having in 1996 about film. So casting a black man to play Mercutio and then to play him in this, you know, very flamboyant drag queen way were, those were very bold choices. It was just, it's just a blast to watch him on screen. And he's so paranoid, like so completely embodied mm-hmm. in a way that we don't see all that often. It's very risky for actors to make those kinds of choices. And that's like w- this Mercutio role is what happens when somebody goes 100% in. Yes. Like He bought all the way in to doing all the things and it just works so beautifully. I, I just thought he was so much fun to watch and Leguizamo as well. Those were my really two faves, but I also like really loved Pete Postaway. Yeah.
0: <laughs> it's a great role. I mean, that's one thing I remember too about the Apothecary role. It's a great role. It gets to do a lot. He's complicated. He has to mediate various vectors and try to figure out plans and make the and make the case to Romeo and then talk to Juliet and it's great and he's he's there's a gravitas and an energy and you feel like you trust him but he's also on edge himself like he's not just a Yoda sort Mm -hmm. of person like he is like vibrating with whatever he's smoking you know or in his grow house with his like (laughs) cardigan on or whatever um it's a good life he's it living. It is. But, and he's, he's genuinely sympathetic to their emotions and yeah. willing to work the system, um, which is great. It's, it's, a char- it's the kind of character as a teenager, you wanted someone like that in your life, right? The, the, the adult fixer who got you, but also would help you navigate what you were trying to, yeah, to, and- to pull off.
2: He just has this knowingness. And I do think that the delivery of the lines in iambic pentameter yeah, matters. Right. And it makes, it really clicks your attention into the words that Shakespeare wanted you to be paying attention mm-hmm. to. But there's this great moment when Friar Lawrence is talking to Romeo and he looks at him and he says, Young men's love lies not truly in their heart, but in, in their, their
0: pause. Eyes. He looks <laughs> yeah, down at DiCaprio's this, crotch. Yeah, yeah.
2: It's this great, like perfect pause. It comes out on his face. Just like the the right amount of knowingness and sarcasm, but also like I too have been a young man and had these kinds That's of right. thoughts. Um, I was reading that Marlon Brando at one point expressed interest Jesus. in playing that character, and like talk about a completely different movie. Yeah, um, I I think that. A lot of, like most of the actors in this, I can't imagine them being swapped out for anyone else. There's no one that I would want to recast, but there are several that like could be recast and it would still be fine. Mm. I don't want to give up Pete Postalweight as Friar Lawrence. Yeah,
0: I don't want to get, let's talk about Legosamo just for a minute too, because his Tybalt Prince of Cats is like, a greaser matador disco yeah. kid you know like it's <laughs> yes. great like he steps out of that and these wonderful hoopdies. like I think there's also there's an underlayance of like rap like mid-90s rap culture here too and about how they mm-hmm. hold the guns and the kind of cars they're driving and even like the music they're listening to it's supposed to it's supposed to feel like you know Inglewood or something in 1995 as, as an undercurrent of the yeah. vibe here too but then Leguizamo's, he he's stepping out of you know, Blade Runner in Spain or something like that. I'm not even sure what this is, but I remember distinctly I've, one of the first things like, well, if you see Romeo and Juliet, you, you, it's called Romeo and Juliet. It takes a long time to get to the Romeo and Juliet stuff. And I was like, this yes. Montague and Capulet stuff at the beginning and do you bite your stomach, Miser? Like, I was like, well, let's get, skip to the end. But here, I think the opening scene might be my favorite scene. Mm-hmm. With the way he puts a cigarette down and he, he snuffs it out with the heel of his cowboy boot and he's like, Thou yes. art a villain. And they're looking at each other. And Dash Mayak, who plays Benvoli, who's wonderful in the whole thing, mm-hmm. they're just looking at each other and they're nervous, but they're also machismo. And it just, the whole thing is amazing um, from the beginning. And Lurman's kinetic, quick cutting, zooming in and out style really adds some sense of what's going on even as the characters aren't necessarily moving in these moments. Like yeah. you, you, you zoom in on Benvolio's eyes and you see it twitching. And then you zoom in on Lego Zemo like sort of tipping his, his guns, right? And so much of that works and conveys an urgencies and a sense of danger, fraughtness in this kind of in this kind of scene that doesn't always come across in a stage version for sure. Um that they really are on the verge of killing each other. Um, yeah,
2: it has that opening gas station scene. I also really love. Um, and I'm so glad you used the word hoopty. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it has the feeling like Leguizamo swaggering around in those boots has the feeling too of like you could move that scene to like cowboys busting through saloon yes, doors yes. and tumbleweeds rolling down. And it, it has that same feel. It's this like we've seen this kind of character before, but this guy is... <laughs> I, don't, I don't think we're going to do better than Greaser Matador. <laughs> like, he's Am I wearing wrong, though? Leather, no, oh, yeah. he's wearing leather pants. He's driving a hoopty. It is like some alternate universe LA in the 90s with rival gangs who are going to shoot at each other unpredictably. Um, it's just like, it, it feels like you're on drugs from the very first yeah. scene. And um, I think that it does, it serves the audience well for that of like, there's no surprise, like everything's going to get shaken up here. And Lorman's like, you think you know Romeo and Juliet.
0: It takes but. a minute to, I remember from the first, it takes a minute to orient yourself. I remember this feeling with Moulin Rouge mm-hmm. too. Like it's such a different, it's uh, not, I mean, it's not crazy different, but it's such a, a cinematic dialect that Lorman speaks that it it can take a minute to figure out how to read the movie as you're going. Um, mm-hmm. Is this serious? Is this satire? And you have to come out of those binaries. Like, yeah, it's both. Like it's broad right. and um, real emotionally, it's like psychological realism and very broad and caricatured in the same way. It's like the great, the great example for me, I think, is like the neon crucifixes. Like that's yes. lureman is a neon crucifix. That's kind of and what his th- mo is.
2: It's, and that I, that scene is so iconic Romeo walking down the aisle of the church with those neon crosses it's like the thing that I picture when I picture this movie and I don't think anybody else does it that way it's just so specifically Baz Luhrmann
0: so if we're if we're we have a lifeboat of the cast we're saving DiCaprio (laughs) yeah I think we're saving next we're saving Postal Weight and then Mercutio we haven't got to Dane's mm-hmm. yet. Do you want to save her? We've only got we've got room for six people on this lifeboat. Do you want to put Dane's in yet? You want to put Dane's in? I think I do, too. I do. She's not top yeah. four, but I think she goes on the lifeboat. After that, I think I'm I'm taking Dash Mayock as, as Benvolio, I think, is okay. the next one. And then after that, mm-hmm. everyone is fine, but the rest of the people don't get much to do. Like Paul Servino <laughs> gets this very, like, disturbing, bullying Juliet into marrying Paris. Mm-hmm. Paul Rudd is smarmy and great as sort of, like, it becomes one of Paul Rudd's alter egos, like the Bobby Newport smarmy, Yeah, it's like a guy.
2: precursor to Bobby Newport, yeah.
0: Um, but he's fine. He doesn't... No one else has enough to do, really. I guess... Is there anybody else that sticks yeah. So out?
2: I've got, what, two people left yeah. in my lifeboat. I'm taking Leguizamo also. Oh, I, I'm sorry. And I should have said Leguizamo. Okay. And then my last spot goes to the little boy who fronts the choir that sings when doves cry.
0: Amazing soundtrack stuff. <laughs> a lot of shine for that kid. And Leontine Price, yeah. I didn't know at the time, you know, like a legit metropolitan opera star singing an aria from Tristan Rizolda, which is a tragic lover thing. I, I didn't know enough about high mm. culture at the time to even know what the hell was going on there yeah. but that's a very high low Lorman thing to do right like you have prince and then tristan and isolde and then radiohead and then rap like all rolled into right. the same thing a very flat Yeah it out. and
2: thinking about the soundtrack and watching it like i think that of the of the very 90s songs on this soundtrack the only one that really like Stands the Test of Time is the Kissing You song that Desiree oh, yeah, performs right. and that she sings live at the party. Like that's relatively timeless. The rest of that soundtrack is like, if you listen to it, you're like, this is music from 1996. The
0: radio um, head over the end credits. I was like, wow, this is so late 90s. This is incredible, yeah, nostalgic, it is, sort of specific feeling. But about that, that
2: like the, when doves cry moment, like what else would you play in a church lit with neon other than Prince? Like it's a, it's just a perfect yeah, choice. Right. And that the little boy who fronts the choir is genius. The music in this movie does so much work. Like, because you do, as you were saying, like you get dropped in without a real sense of where you mm. are and it takes a little time to figure out what's going on in the story and who you're with and what's happening and they're speaking in iambic pentameter or just old Shakespearean language and rolling over a lot of it that like the music cues, I think, do a lot to tell you how you're supposed to be feeling. Yeah. And there I, there wasn't, a, there was not a beat that I was like, oh, I would have done a different song in this moment. I think, you know, some of it doesn't last, mm-hmm. um, but that's okay. Like, you know, I don't need to be listening to the cardigans in twenty nineteen, yeah, but cardigans. I'm glad that they're on the soundtrack.
0: Right. Um yeah, I mean the the I think as a whole, outside of Ben Volvio, the Romeo's boys, like they're of a piece. Like you could probably swap mm-hmm. Jamie Kennedy out for someone else. You could oh, you could swap yeah, yeah. those people out. You know, Gregory, Zach Orth. One thing I noticed too, there's I mean, there's a lot of close ups and zooms, so you get a lot of teeth. Like mm-hmm. Lorman doesn't mind people sh- grinning, showing their teeth. Like Mercutio and Legozamo, they have like distinctive like jaws and teeth, and there's a lot of people showing their teeth. I think it's part of the sort of face-off thing that's going on here. But that's that's one thing I noticed too. Legozamo's got such an mm-hmm. interesting grill to look at him talking with a big <laughs> smile and sort of like smirk, bantering, threatening through these attractively jagged, menacing teeth. The Weight has this very like y like severe kind of look. It was just one thing I noticed this time. Brian Dennehy as Ted Montague doesn't have a lot to do. Um, Lady Capulet. I think I'm on the fence about Lady Capulet. Mm -hmm. It's a tough role because one thing that hasn't held up well in Shakespeare and a lot of period pieces writ large is there's the parent sort of who's enforcing the social mores of the day. Okay, that's what Paul Servino is doing. You've got to marry him because of blah, blah, blah. We sort of get that. Then there's the other parent, right, who is – not so as interested in that, but they also don't have sort of a modern language of like emotionally connecting with, I'll help you through this. Mm-hmm. She sort of nopes out and she's like wearing her Cleopatra gown. I'm not sure that's the, that's the, the actress who, whose name escapes me at the moment I looked it up. I don't have any in front of me. That's one thing like, I'm not sure you do with that particular yeah. character. Like We get this really interesting scene of her dressing up, but then we don't, we don't have any reason to care um, about that. So. Anyway, that, those are the yeah. only two where they got significant screen time where I'm like, eh, maybe someone else could do that. I don't know. Yeah,
2: that was I was thinking about her as well. Of Like, if Lorman had made the choice to just cut some things out of the script, you can really either give her something else to do or just not have to deal with Lady Capulet very much. Yeah. She just doesn't. Yeah, there's just not much going
0: on there. No, there's not much. Um, Tough role. Tough role.
2: Yeah, this was, but otherwise it's just, it, it, it was it's bonkers from start to finish. Mm. I, I think I texted you from when I was like 20 <laughs> minutes in like, man, this is way more than I remembered <laughs> it being. Um, and I had, I think just coming off of that, we just did Shawshank Redemption. I was like, we've got two movies in a row where we get a guy standing in the rain with his arms all yes. outstretched, having this like Christ-like moment. Um mm. Just probably a similarity I wouldn't have caught if we hadn't just watched Andy Dufresne do that, but just had to note that Leo does spend a lot of this movie being wet. He's Are in the a pool, not, no. he's
0: at the beach, he's in the rain. <laughs> I mean, I think it's I think on. Leonardo DiCaprio wet is just nice to look at. I, I don't know if it's more just complicated than that. The dreamiest, yeah. That
2: yeah. they're like, how do we make you even dreamier? Yeah, right. Like, let's soak you down. Leo DiCaprio. <laughs>
0: right. Let, let's not even pretend. This whole movie is shot. It's on location in an erogenous zone. That's where that's where the setting of this movie is.
2: <laughs> you know, it is interesting, like a thing that I've been just noticing in movies and TV is that people who play teenage characters today Look very different yes. from what teenage characters looked like on screen 25 years ago, 20 years ago. And like this is not a movie about like a built up like these are not built up like muscular mm-hmm. hunks and the girls are not built like Barbies and like the the teenagers on screen in the 90s were still very like idealized and held up to impossible standards of beauty but they look like real people in a way that like i think if we were seeing a 2019 version of Mm. this like all of the people in line to play romeo have like giant biceps and leo is doing like leo does this work with his face like this is about leo's face and his ability to deliver the lines and like to live in that body that he has and to be you know somehow lanky and awkward but also incredibly charming um but it's not about like let's go find the hunk right like he's not a he's not six four
0: he's not a quarterback he's not working the glutes you know claire danes isn't duck Mm -hmm. facing into instagram like it's just a completely (laughs) different no it's like it's a very natural like the way that lorman Mm -hmm. like again you said the costumes mean something she's an angel she's wearing these angel wings she's innocent she's pure but also not like that's, you know, that's the duality that can be very attractive. Right. That one when, when she's turned on, she's turned on. She's not trying to hide mm-hmm. it. She's not trying to suppress it. Um, OK, let's get into some of our for questions. I don't think we want to do book versus movie stuff. I don't even think no. that's on the table here necessarily. I don't
2: think it. I don't think we need to. Yeah. No.
0: And a great example, I think, of, you know, you and I are always pro adaptation Adapt, mm-hmm. adapt it. Something better because this can. St- you still get to keep Romeo and Juliet, and you get this on top of it, which I think yeah. I am better for as just a consumer of these sorts of things. Um, is there any Joyce Carol Oates Oh No Award moments?
2: Um, you know, not on the part of the movie. Like the reading this text, as I've said, like through twenty nineteen eyes. There's that moment when they're in the pool and Claire Danes is getting out, and Romeo is like, yeah. "Doth thou leave me it's so satisfied. unsatisfied?" Yeah. And my friend and my my friend and Bob and I were watching this and we were like, oh, that's just, you know, it's weird watching people who are supposed to be teenagers, but we know are adults like Mm -hmm. (laughs) talk to each other like this and also just watching a teenage boy deliver that line. But also, what is a more believable teenage boy line than that? I think the movie kind
0: of knows it, too, though. I think they try to do because like Claire Danes turns is like incredulous, like she thought right. we were playing a different game, right? And she's yeah. like, well, "How could I leave you satisfied tonight?" He's like, and he turns and he says, "With a token of thine, a trait of thy, a trait of a token of thine affection for mine." So that's either yeah. DiCaprio walking it back or her being, a, you know, her knowing it could go to a different mm-hmm. direction and it doesn't go there. Which I don't know if it's in the play or not, but I had that moment too. But I. I think they saved it as much as they could if they were going to keep that in the mm-hmm. line of like actually saying, no, it's not that it is something else. Right. And having the moment where it could go the other way as a signal that it's not going to
1: mm-hmm. actually I think
0: maybe works. So maybe I just like the movie and I want to justify it. But um, I actually thought that <laughs> worked for me as saying, this is actually something different. We know yeah. what you could think this is, but it's not that.
2: Yeah. And, and I do think like, this is a testament to the way that Leo plays the character, but also to the way the character is written that like Romeo we are to believe is genuinely in love yes. with Juliet and he's not like he's not just out to you know I'm trying to come up with a child-friendly like family-friendly non-explicit it's not a, it's
0: not a it's not a he's you know, not drive-by for like a to use the, 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 the yeah. visual language yes. of the movie it's not a drive-by shooting
2: Exactly, yeah, Um, and that does a lot of the work as well. That like this is a relationship that he's trying to pursue, and he's not trying to be exploitative Mm -hmm. and take advantage of her. And that we see that she's interested, and she has desire, and she has agency there, and she pushes back. I think that does all work really well. So much of like I just had little notes about like the stuff that doesn't age super well, but not on the fault of Baz Luhrmann. Like this is very, it's just very nineties. Like they walk out of the party, and there's a giant tent where you check your guns on the way in and then you pick them up on the way out. No
0: ticket, no gun. Okay. Weird. Yeah, I was
2: like, oh yeah, yeah, we're not, we're not doing that if you're readapting it right now. Like, that's not happening probably on screen. I don't, I don't think that goes well um probably some of the like the setups in the beginning of like the riot coverage and especially the mm. way that like police violence sort of looks on screen in the first five minutes um maybe does not get presented in the same way or gets left out of a frame story like i was like "Ooh, this is you know what does this look like in the age of black lives matter and thinking about like how we talk about rioting and police brutality yeah. right up front. But there's just like little details. I actually um, think
0: that works on the whole, because I, I, I'm i more and more convinced that's supposed to be vaguely South American. Like these are drug cartels. And so it's like mm. the kind of violence you would have seen in Colombia in the 70s that really was civil unrest when two warring gangs were shooting each other in the streets. And it was shot. I just thought it was an interesting choice. I, yeah, if it's America it in the 90s, yeah. I agree with you totally um, that there's a different political valence to... Um, Again, this is not a—I don't think the movie maybe could have done something differently, but it's part of Romeo and Juliet. Like, what we know about suicide now and how to Mm -hmm. represent it at the end is very tough. Very tough to watch. I mean, Romeo and Juliet is supposed to be tough. You're supposed to feel fat. You're supposed to feel bad. But there's— I don't know. Again, Shakespeare didn't know stuff about mental health and copycatting and this kind of stuff. I was just very nervous at the end about, yeah, Jesus, she's putting it gun to her head. God, this is horrible. Um,
2: yeah, this is one of those places where like, we're still reading this story and telling this story to teenagers because it's been around for yeah. 500 years because nobody is pitching a YA book today about a teen couple who meet and 24 hours later run away to get married, no. and their families are mad at them. And so they both kill themselves. Right. Like, that's just not happening. Like, the only reason this is on screen is that it's been around for this long. And I think that's also the only reason that we accept yes. this storyline. But I had that same thought of, like, you know, even just the way that we've taught, that we've started to talk about representations of suicide on screen in the last 20 years, since this was made like glamorizing it in this way, especially glamorizing committing suicide, killing yourself over a boy. um, Yeah. The beauty of this suicide
0: scene is a problem. Like it's beautiful. Like, I mean, and I don't think you want to do it that way.
2: Right. And it's a tragic choice. Mm -hmm. And the, the play presents it as a tragedy, but also this very romantic tragedy. Yes. Um, yeah. That is not the way that we talk about these things. And I don't
0: know, again, I think you're right, that we, we say this is a story we can adapt and talk about because it's effectively secular myth, right? And so it's not subject to, rightly or wrongly, I'm not even sure I'm, this is how it should be, just the way that it is. It's not subject to the kind of scrutiny we'd get a new work of art. Um, it's just not. Um, yeah. and Romeo and Juliet's part of the culture. I don't think there's any point in shying away for it unless you're not going to talk about it at all, which I don't think we're really interested in, but I think even a allurement adaptation would be more careful mm-hmm. about how the suicide, maybe it's off camera, you know, maybe there's some other, I don't know, but that, that's that just, that the scene itself is so spectacular, romanticizes suicide in a way I don't think I'm certainly not comfortable with. I, I just don't think represents yeah. the best of what we currently know. Um, Maybe it should be just sadder. I mean, it's already it already is so sad, but maybe like doubling down on the sadness and tragedy and the unnecessariness mm. of it, rather than we're on this pile of linens and we're gorgeous people and are all all these candles are burning all night and what is this exactly like? It's a funeral. It's a Pietà of young love, which I think has some negative connotations for the the meaning we're taking away from it.
2: Yeah, I think so too. And I wonder what it's like to come to this movie for the first time as a teenager today. Like, are there 15-year-olds watching this no adaptation of Romeo and Juliet? And what do they think? Like, if I knew where to find them on the internet, I would have done that in my research mm-hmm. for this. Because what, what does it look like through those eyes? Because it's impossible to disentangle the 14 year old version of myself that saw this and interpreted it that those first ways from the adult perspective and being able to like take the story and take the adaptation and take Lorman's artistic look at it and separate all those things out but I wonder like like, this holds up for us, um, mm-hmm. having known it for 23 years. Right. Like, does it Endowment hold effects. up? Yeah, I mean, it's hard right. to Right, yeah. Does it, what is it like to come to this movie for the first time today? Or even adults? Like, I'd be curious, folks listening to the show, if somehow you have not seen. Yeah, <laughs> I'd love <laughs> to. We need a control and Juliet. group. Juliet. Yeah, what is it like to come to this fresh? Like, does the set piece work? What are the quibbles? Um, I would I would love to have that experience. Like if I could, you know, take the pill and forget that I had seen it before. What would I think?
0: Let's do um, quibbles and questions first, and let's end with our favorite part, our favorite scenes, and you know, and we can end there because we're not going to do a. I don't think we should do a book. I mm-hmm. mean, clearly you pick Romeo and Juliet, the text. I mean, again, it's. But I'll ask you at the end. Let's do quibbles, <laughs> then our favorite pieces, and we'll get out of here. Qu- any quibbles or questions or like what's left hanging for you? Um, you know, that was- I
2: felt like I. I didn't have many quibbles because I know Romeo and Juliet and I've I've seen the movie, you know, there's just not a lot of room there. Like if they were going, if Lurman was going to like go off script a little bit more, I think I would have liked a little bit more of Paul Rudd just because (laughs) he's fun to watch in that like smarmy precursor to Bobby Newport kind of way. Um, there I didn't I just didn't have many quibbles I think you just get for me this is like you get tossed into this world and it's like all right here I am I'm gonna let this wash over yeah, me yeah right right yeah
0: there's not too many in terms of story structure and like plot questions that are questions of the movie that you wouldn't be asking of the book for 5,000 years like right why couldn't Juliet just run away to Mantua why why the pantomime right. death <laughs> they're gonna go there anyway like just get her out there I never, right, never quite that, followed that but that's not a movie that's a Romeo like, and Juliet problem
2: and I had this moment, like, who banishes a fourteen-year-old? And my friend Laura was like, "Well, you know, they only live to be like thirty at the time. That's right. So They're they basically
0: just, fifty. You know, and
2: he's basically an adult. Elizabeth like, years are is like dog cruel.
0: years.
2: Right? Yeah, this is just cruel. They're banishing teenagers. Like, who banishes teenagers? Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't really. I, you know, I seeing postal weight deliver the lines in iambic pentameter and the way that it comes across like some of that magic is just that he's fantastic yeah. but some of it i think it, it did make me wonder would the movie have been better or even mm. better would the lines have come across even more if all the actors delivered it in iambic pentameter and like what how did that choice get made that they weren't going to um i want i wonder about that alternate universe. Is it dialed up? Is it like, you, do you pay more attention if they're all doing that? Because um, it's, as it's delivered now, there are definitely like a lot of moments that I think you can sort of space out and yeah. still know what's it's happening. It's more of a
0: naturalistic choice that these are this sort yeah. of an embedded language where Postal Wait himself carries a certain formality. So it's not a, sh- mm-hmm. a shock to see a more formal delivery come out of his mouth, even though he's like the big Lebowski Crossed with a a priest, Um, but I don't think I think you would. And Dennehy too gives a little bit more Mm -hmm. of a enunciated, articulate, in meter performance. But I think the hanging around with your boys, it's supposed to be informal, and so having the formal iambic pentameter, it would have been interesting to see. But I think I understand that it's supposed to be like it's supposed to feel like in group speech. And to stylize, to have that level of formality, I think takes away from the rawness and the camaraderie we would see. But I, I agree with you. I'd like to. Would it work? Maybe it would work. Yeah, um, as yeah. Well.
2: I just, I did have this quibble about casting, and it doesn't have anything to do with Claire Danes individually, but both of the actors that play her parents, I believe, both of the actors that play her parents are latino the woman who plays her mother definitely that's one of my quibbles too is
0: the racial component of the capulets
2: (laughs) Um, yeah that like she's surrounded by and i do think this lends uh, it also lends credence to your belief that this is set in south america mm -hmm. um like she is surrounded by like claire danes juliet is surrounded by people who are latino and why did we cast a white person to play this character um it just like it doesn't make it doesn't make sense if you think about it for five seconds in terms of like wait but her parents are and she's blonde and what is she blonde Uh, Uh,
0: is she playing like now that you say that or she doing the danes reddish thing i can't remember she's
2: wearing a wig it's like brunette but it's not her natural hair color i learned in my research she's wearing a wig and then she has like a special underwater wig also for the. you know i never would have thought about
0: underwater wigs
2: of course (laughs)
0: Yeah, DiCaprio doesn't need one. Of course, one. Jeff. Why would you? He why would you wig DiCaprio? What a travesty that would be! Why would you? Right? Um, yeah, um, I mean, it's but, a little yeah, tough because South that. American racial lines, again, American racial lines are a perversion of many things that exist in the real world. But you can have lighter-skinned Latino people, like Paul Sorvino's daughter Maria Sorvino, looks more like Claire Danes than than him. But I think it's a it's an interesting point. Like Claire Danes looks like a big ball of Wisconsin. Cream cheese. Yeah. <laughs> and Lego Zamo and his and his sidekick are very much Latinos and portrayed as Latinos mm-hmm. or portrayed as, like, guys that could have been in West Side Story. Um, yeah, West Side Story. Yeah, right? West Side Story. Mm-hmm. And she isn't. Like, she doesn't look like them. She doesn't talk like them. We don't get scenes with her with them, which I don't think you get in the movie, in the book anyway. Like, apparently, yeah. she really cares about Tybalt, Prince of Cats, even though they don't exchange a word. Um also, what is a prince of cats? That's another question I had. I never, I never asked before. Like, are they actual cats? Because I could see Baz Luhrmann's version of Cats the musical, in which there is Tybalt, Prince of oh Cats. Um, also, you know, the
2: Baz Luhrmann Cats is the thing that I wish were coming out in December.
0: No, you know why he wouldn't do that? Because you know what? He's like, <laughs> e- even for Luhrmann, like he's like that shit too crazy. I can't do that. You know, if Luhrmann is turning you down for being too nuts, you've got a problem.
2: I feel like that's when they're like. You buy your ticket, and when you show up to the theater, they give you a popcorn, a coke, (laughs) and a tab of acid. Yes, and and a huge bottle of water and ecstasy. Right, right, we'll see you in a couple hours. Just let this happen.
0: Yeah, the the Danes, again, this is another thing that the movie doesn't care about, and we didn't care about in the mid 90s. And we, being pop culture, I mean, there were people who knew about stuff, who cared about stuff before we did. It was not in the discourse. It was not in the public discourse. But again, looking at it, and a more interesting movie is She's a Latina. I think the, mm-hmm. that that dynamic is much more interesting. And then the Montague Capulet I think has an undertone of racial enmity in this movie anyway. Like I think that's, mm-hmm. especially at the beginning before we see Mercutio, it's these three white dudes against these two Latino dudes. Like it's a race, it's a race thing at the beginning of this movie. And that gets more complicated as Parano comes in and then like, Claire Danes is, you know, looks like she's from um, Minnesota, uh, you know, and and- that that's just that's a quibble too I think and it, it's not Dane's fault she is who she is but a version of it I think is more interesting with a Latino a Latina actress um, mm-hmm. there other quibbles I like the your gun is your sword but boy do we need as many close up as like this is my rapier nine millimeter and this is my long b- like oh we get it Baz the sons are the guns are swords okay I don't need to, I don't need any additional help yeah. figuring out what's I feel going like on that's
2: there. one of those little things that they do to show like to prove how much attention you're paying to detail is we named all of the guns after actual types of swords specifically so that like teenage dudes who were on dates could like walk out afterwards and be like did you know that all the guns are named after yeah that's
0: right swords? yeah you're primed like, for yeah. mansplaining there aren't you that's <laughs> point. you know you know in the play those are all swords yeah really dipshit i'm right. fantasizing about dicaprio and, just shut your mouth yeah, and, for 30 minutes give me a moment here.
2: right I was telling you before we started recording that like Bob was sitting on the couch with me for the whole viewing, but only kind of paying attention in the way that you only kind of have to pay attention to this movie. And he just popped up to be like, but why are they laser guns? And I was like, you know what? They sound like laser guns. It would also kind of be cool if they actually were laser guns. (laughs) Like, why not? Like, everything else in this movie is completely bananas. Like, why are why not? Why couldn't we have laser guns? But that did like the sound of the guns is weird. But it's also a choice. I think that like, it's waving a gun around is a scary thing on screen. And it's stylized for the guns to have the pew pew kind of thing that they have in this movie instead of you know, it's not like shooting a gun in the Sopranos. Uh,
0: not quibble. Like this is really more of a, I guess a play quibble, but I've never understood. So like Tybalt is so mad that Romeo shoots, uh, shows up at the, the, the party that he wants to duel him to the death. Okay. That's, that's a thing that happens in both, but mm-hmm. Mercutio gets an invite and the invite says Mercutio and friends on it. It doesn't, it's Mercutio's own name known to be a close confidant, ally, uh, swordsman, of Romeo's, how did he get an invite? And it says Mercutio, like Tibble was okay with that. Cause the first shot we get of that party is mm-hmm. Mercutio doing a full sequin swan in the middle of the party. Ain't no doubt that Mercutio is <laughs> at the party. I just don't understand. I don't understand <laughs> That like the, the the front of Romeo showing up What's was a beef? was a blood feud yeah. and Mercutio basically Tu Wong fooling it up in the middle of that that's fine <laughs> that's okay we're all cool with that but Romeo shows his face I have to shoot him I'd never have understood this
2: Oh Tu Wong fuing another great nineties reference Yeah
0: I, I have to break out my nineties references for the, for this particular those are all my <laughs> quibbles and they're more fun quibbles than actual ones it's just mm-hmm. like what is going on here uh, They are it's. Let's do favorite it's, moments. It's favorite great. moments, favorite. I mean, it's Shakespeare, so what are we going to do with lines? I mean, right. it's. Uh, but delivery, performances, moments, whatever you want to do for favorite pieces of this
2: movie. I, there were a couple things that I really. Loved the there's like a nice symmetry of a shot where Claire Danes is that first time we see a Claire Danes she's in the tub she's underwater yes. she opens her eyes yes. and she comes out and like 15 minutes later Roby in the bathroom splashing water of course he is because
0: he has to be wet he's dried out so he's got to go get wet right he's, go he does, wet somehow, right. And he's so <laughs> like
2: he, he's so heated up over Juliet he's got to stick his face mm-hmm. in the sink um, but I loved the just parallelness of those two shots like little details like that the. Way that the elevator, the making out in the elevator shot is put together. Like there's a whole video about the making of that. And it's like, Mm. it's a super technical thing that they had to do to get that shot. Um, But it's just a cool thing to watch. I love that. Just sort of iconic images, that image of Romeo walking down the aisle of the church with all those Neon crosses and the whole party vibe. Yes. Mercutio in the party vibe. Everybody else in the party, like Romeo and Juliet running around holding hands, finding secret places Ugh, to make out. And stuff. then getting getting torn away from each other. And Desiree is down there singing, kissing you. And it's all very, everything is just elevated and turned all the way up. Um, I love all the moments on the, just that like gritty sun coming up on the beach stuff um it's so it's just so good and pete postal forever just pete postal giving romeo advice about life is yeah uh, i would tune in for that once a week
0: um let's see what do i have here yeah mine, mine are more snatches than anything and really it's mm. it's not i mean there's so in, in a way, Romeo and Juliet, I think the play is underrated because I think people think they know what it's about. You know, like mm. the, the the play here is really a lesson to the Montagues and Capulets about enmity, right? Like a plague on both your yeah. houses, like you've ruined the city because you don't understand each other and this really beautiful thing. Um, That postal weight, or a, the, the friar thinks, you know, mm-hmm. if this works, we could solve this. You know, if we yeah. get a Montague and a Capulet in the same, you know, relationship and they're married, this could, this could... This could heal the whole thing, and this sort of bias, and that Juliet kind of gets the philosophical core, like arose by any another what is in a name, like this 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 rivalry based on name, like the Hatfield and mm-hmm. McCoy of it is so arbitrary and yet so real that they can't find their way out of it, and the strength of the tragedy is supposed to, I think, give the Montagues and Capulets a way to shake out of it, like the, the play itself. I don't think believes that, but like that's a possibility. Mm-hmm. So so that part really worked, making it a drug war and, and updating it other than just the Montagues hate the Capulets and translating that into something that felt current. That's a drug yeah. war. It's racial. Like, it's a couple different things on top of it. It's like, oh, we still do this thing. It's not just Veronese people from 500 years ago in Italy because they hate each other's names. Like, oh, we still do this kind of thing. And that, that, that part, I, I thought, was really great on the whole. And then, like, some of the update stuff, I thought making the... the Post haste into FedEx, where it was actually the name of the company mm. that was mm-hmm. this is wonderful stuff, and they're leaving that we missed you while we were out <laughs> while DiCaprio 's hitting rocks with the log, like I was like that could happen. I live in this yeah. house, I work from home many days, and I still miss packages, let alone crucial ones like oh by the way, your one true love is fake dead, not real dead, so chill out about that when you get here. Um, that was one I thought was really great i i don 't know what it is, Michelle and I were talking about this too of the 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 bombed out carny vibe on the beach. Yeah. I don't know mm-hmm. what that is. I'm not sure what it's supposed to be. Maybe it has no analog in the real world, but there's a bombed out amphitheater and a functioning carousel Uh and also a pool hall called the Globe Theater and also the place where you get the real illegal drugs, not the regular drugs, like the real illegal stuff is right there too. Mm-hmm. Like that whole mise-en-scene where it's just like a pocket universe of style um and a vibe, like... That it doesn't have an analog in the real world didn't matter. I kind of got what it was supposed to be, and I didn't quite understand it, which I think, as it speaks to the the cinematography and, and production design, like this isn't something you know, but you're going to feel what we want you to feel. I feel like that's a yeah. movie magic thing um, that I, I don't have the language to articulate properly i said before i love the nurse and juliet when the nurse Mm -hmm. knows and she's she's withholding the information that juliet really wants and watching her squirm and eating a bunch of sandwiches while she's doing i thought that part was fantastic (laughs) a part that again i think is one of those moments earlier than that where i thought danes was doing more than i remembered when she's dancing with paris but basically eye forking romeo across the hall (laughs) Is a uh-huh. wonderful scene where he's basically a pole around which he's dancing while like mm-hmm. being um eye forking. Uh seductive, let's put it that way. <laughs> I thought that whole thing was great. Flirtation. There's something too that because the movie exists on sort of it's spinning around at 75 RPMs, when it slows down, it's especially powerful. And mm-hmm. it slows down. I made fun of that aquarium. Not really made fun of it, but that aquarium when they're lo- looking at each other through the aquarium and the movie yeah. slows down and there's no dialogue, and you just get them looking at each other, and you believe that they fell in love right there. You believe mm-hmm. it, or I did. I'll say, I believe it, right? Whatever yes. the movie's asking me yep. to believe about what they feel about each other, it happened it then, just works. and everything is a product of that. And I bought it, and I don't know what that yeah. is. I don't. That's the, the alchemy of, of chemistry in movies, but that that part worked wonderfully well for me it
2: does it does just just worked there's a fun movie making factor on that too that um the lighting on both sides to like to be able to shoot them from both sides with lighting was ruining the ref- like there was too oh, many reflections happening yeah, and so they shot it in a dark room with lights inside the fish tank they had like solved this problem to light the fish tank from within Whoa. so that you could shoot it from both sides and still see both of their faces
0: i'm surprised dicaprio didn't end up in the fish tank because he he, he goes into every other <laughs> body of water we see any other water we see dicaprio is going to be in it at some point
2: he does spend a lot of time in water in Titanic too, so like maybe there's a version Jeez. of this that's just entirely underwater, water world, but Romeo and Juliet.
0: So basically, what we're hearing is squinting. Wet DiCaprio <laughs> is worth like four billion dollars of American global historical <laughs> box office. Just that alone is just yes. money in the bank. Um, let's, uh, from
2: the from the mid nineties, twenty nineteen, Leonardo DiCaprio can stay dry.
0: Oh yeah, that's that's a different look. Let's put it that way. Um, <laughs> I I don't think I'm supposed to like this. Politically. Mm, um mm-hmm. but I thought the gun play stuff was fun. I'm sorry it was fun. Like when they're when they're they're whipping their guns around, they're pointing at each other, like the whole thing. Like it's supposed to be fun on stage with swords. Like swords are more cinematic yeah. and and theatrical than guns because you have to do fight, you actually have to fight where guns you pull the trigger and it's over. So they had to stage it in a way where they have the guns out and it's kind of a battle with now no shots being fired. I just thought it was clever and well staged. I think
2: it's I think it's clever too and maybe the pew pew sounds are part yes. of it, but it make it lowers the stakes. Like there are certain table stakes anytime a gun mm-hmm. is on screen. Um, but it really does not feel the same. Like in this movie it does not feel the same as you feel when like characters are pointing guns at each other on like on the Sopranos or in a straight gangster movie. Um it's it just has a different tone
0: yeah. to it. Yeah. And related to that, I think I traced the, the provenance of the gun correctly, but the gun that Juliet eventually shoots herself with, I think, is Tybalt's gun that DiCaprio got in the course of fight, Mercutio and Tybalt fighting. So the oh. very gun that Tybalt used, you know, at the sign of the enmity is the mm-hmm. thing that Juliet literally kills herself with. I don't know if—I I think is and his co-writer, and I forget, they, they've known each other since college— Norman doesn't seem to me to be that like a Kubrickian in that kind of detail, mm. but I wouldn't be surprised if they thought about that. Some of it was the logistics because they were fighting and DiCaprio gives up his gun, right? Cause he's, he's basically right. subjecting himself to Dibble saying, you know, be, be, um, be satisfied and Tibble quails and doesn't shoot him. But then he has to get his gun to eventually, sh- Tibble gets shot with his own gun and <laughs> Juliet shoots mm-hmm. himself with the very same gun that kicked off this whole mess. I thought was a a, an elegant little moment too.
2: I didn't pick that up, but I also need to believe that it was on purpose. Yeah,
0: and I think I've got the provenance right. And you know what? I'm not going to go check because I want. I like this idea. (laughs) The English professor me really (laughs) likes this idea um, to go in. Um, Anything else that's that stands out especially? You know what? I'll sorry. This one last thing. It's a dramatic, sentimental movie, and Mm -hmm. Lurman's doesn't. Shy away from sentimentality and spectacle and passion, and he lets people ham. I mean, when when oh, when Romeo yeah. was crying in Mad Max Fury Road, Burning Man Land, he <laughs> is dist- I mean, he is unhinged. When mm-hmm. Juliet is crying, she is unhinged. When Tybalt is mad, he is mad. When Mercutio is flamboyant in prancing, he is flamboyant in prancing, and I. I think there's a thing where people don't want Shakespeare to feel ridiculous because of the language itself was already, but like dialing it up to 11 served something there and oh, they yeah. all went for it and they were all vulnerable and they just all took a shot and none of it felt like overacting. It just didn't to me. Yeah, it just really
2: And I think that that goes back to that band camp feel as mm-hmm. well, that it, it matters that everybody is bought in all yes, the way. Right. Like this doesn't work. Nearly as well, if Harold Perrineau is the only one who shows up dialed to Mm eleven, but that everybody goes in and they're able to like to meet each other in that place and to match each other with those kinds of performances that are like just so full of feeling of whatever the feeling is that they're having in that moment speaks to the kind of work that must have been happening on that set in some way where it was not just okay but encouraged to go there and that everybody goes there that like it's it's fully. It's just all the way. I i can't even articulate it. Yeah. It's just like they're doing all the things. Right. Or one of my friends would say, like, he's doing so much. They're just doing too, they They might be doing too much, but it's working. Like, it just all works.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, the technical things. It struck me, too. Looking at the budget, it was only $14.5 million. Again, mm-hmm. it was 22 years ago, so adjusted yeah. for inflation would be a lot more. But a, a relatively inexpensive production, there's no... I mean, I'm sure there are special effects, but this is not computer stuff. And right. it's it it's it's colorful, it's kinetic, and it's exciting without a bunch of computer Avengers green screen stuff. Which I don't know. It just reminds it's it's almost, it's one of those things like seeing someone do that much with so much less is even more amazing because um, the color and and movement take the place of what we we would ask a computer to do um, mm-hmm. in a lot of different ways, and also. I saw this on a big screen, and I think I saw it twice on a big screen in 1996 into 1997, and then I've seen it on small TVs like off VHS like ever since. This yeah. is the first time I'd seen it on a big TV in HD, and damn, does mm. it look! It looks freaking it really great. Does. It is gorgeous. Mm-hmm. It's just just to look at it is wonderful. Um, and that I hadn't seen it on anything close to the the TV I was watching at home. Since the theater, and I would just, it, it kind of hit me in the head again. It's like God, it's, go- it's a gorgeous movie, yeah. And see it on a, as big of a TV you can with the sound turned up um, mm-hmm. or off. I guess as we said, the, the <laughs> pantomime, uh, <a> pan- <laughs> oh, like I like it. There's like a Blu-ray where there's only sound the sound track, of track and effects, but no dialogue. I wonder how that would. Um, oh, that hold would up be interesting. As well, all right, I'm all head up now too. Okay.
2: Me too. I I'm th- just gonna go, go ahead. think about. 1996 Leonardo DiCaprio.
0: Yeah, you're gonna need a little time. I have to say of the of the movies we've done between the Da Vinci Code and Shawshank and Hunt, I'm the most glad I watched this again. And I guess I haven't seen mm. it as much. Well, Da Vinci Code, and that's we like the the book more than movie. Yeah. But this one, I was really just thrilled to be watching it again.
2: Me too. Um, me too. And I think also it's I think it's been since college that I watched this because my last memory is watching it on like a very small TV screen yeah. in someone's dorm room. That watching it. At this age, watching it with the sort of movie watching history that I have now, um, and on a great big TV with with those bright colors and with this soundtrack, mm-hmm. and being able to sort of step have a little bit removed from the experience but also be completely absorbed by it I was I went into it with an open question of, I was like, ask you that. how is this like how is this going to
0: mm-hmm.
2: hold up and I was ready to realize quickly like oh no this is mm-hmm. not aged well and within five minutes I was like well I'm all the way in now too <laughs> this is working yes it's, it was crazy then and it's crazy now and it still works mm. um yeah I'm really really glad that we watched it
0: all right well thanks Rebecca If any of you are inspired, motivated, terrorized into watching this and haven't seen it before, and would like to share your reactions with us, we would we would especially welcome them. Podcast at bookriot.com. Um I don't think we have any previews of what's going on next yet. 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 Yeah, not yet. yet. Thank you guys. Thank you, Rebecca.
2: Thank you. Have a good one.